Pellicle is proudly sponsored by Lochran Brewers Select, a seventh-generation family-owned business based near Dundalk in Ireland. In 2014, James Lochran established Lochran Brewing Stores in order to supply high-quality brewing ingredients to the burgeoning beer industries in the UK, Ireland and mainland Europe. The business expanded in 2022 when ingredient wholesaler Brewers Select joined the Lochran family, expanding its suppliers within the brewing ingredient and raw material industry. Some of those suppliers include Crosby Hops, a family-owned hop farm in Oregon, USA, Baird's Malt here in the UK, and industry-leading yeast producer Lalamond. Thanks to their support, we're able to pay more writers, photographers, and illustrators than ever before, and invest in special projects like this podcast. Thanks again to Lochran Brewers Select, who you can find out more about by visiting brewersselect.co.uk forward slash pellicle. And now... Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Pellicle Podcast with me, Matthew Curtis, and the second in our instalment of panel discussions from FineFest 2023. This discussion is hosted by my co-founder, Johnny Hamilton, and it's called Modern British Lager. It also features some proper lager luminaries, including Colin Strong of Salt Beer Factory in Saltaire, Rhys Hugill of Donzoco and the author of one of our most read pieces on bank pints, which you may have caught, and Hannah Davidson from beer distributor Jolly Good Beer. As I said in the last episode, I'm not going to hang around with a long intro this time because we've got a long discussion and plenty more to get through after this episode. I will also add quickly that we had a crackly microphone in this recording, so there's a few snaps and pops, and I hope those aren't too distracting. So let's plough straight into this conversation and learn all about what's happening in terms of British lager. Hello, how's everyone doing? Good? Warm? Yeah. Um, Welcome to this discussion on uh, UK Lager. My name is Johnny Hamilton. I'm co-founder of Pellicle Magazine with Matthew here. And I'm going to let you guys introduce yourselves uh, and say who you are, uh, what you're into. And uh, yeah, but just introduce yourselves and uh, yeah, starting with Reese. Hi, I'm Reese from Don Zoko. I'm the uh, owner and production man. yeah, we make Germany lagers. Uh, I'm Colin Strong. I'm currently head brewer at uh, Salt Beer Factory in Saltaire. Hi, I'm Hannah Davidson, and I am the procurement manager for Drink Fresh Jolly Good Beer, who are a wholesaler who uh, we deal like I buy their beer basically, and then sell it to we sell it to other people. So. Cool. Um, so this discussion is. Uh, yeah, it's going to be very unplanned and just kind of see where we go with it because I think there's a lot to take in regarding uh, the state of UK lager. Um, but where I kind of want to start is maybe with H- Hannah here. Is uh, in the UK, obviously, we have it's seen a great rise in uh, UK beer in the last 10, 15 years, and you know we're in a great position. But I'd say the main thing that I would say we're lacking is, uh, apart from Scotland, obviously, with, with tenants being so ubiquitous and maybe harp in Ireland and things like that, I feel we're not seeing a UK brewed mass market lager. Carling at one point was, was there and maybe it still exists in parts of England, but uh, compared to the, the rise we've seen in the industry, why do we think that companies, uh, why do we think that continental lager is better than UK made lager? Why is Madri, which is brewed in the UK, uh, so big? And why did we not, why, can't, why couldn't they have just made it a Brit, not this sounds really Brexit. <laughs> yeah. uh, why do we feel the need to make our lagers continental? So if you look back like through history, apart from like some of the larger London breweries and, and Scottish breweries, uh, lager was always seen as an imported thing. Um, Vienna lager was imported to the UK like 
one of the first places in Europe, other than Austria, was was uh, was was a, a, a Vienna Lager like a showcase in London, and it was always seen as a continental thing, not a British thing. Even if it used British ingredients, but the big London breweries would bring people over from Germany to build new brew houses just to make lager. So it was never seen as a, even though it was brewed in the UK, maybe with British ingredients, it was always a continental thing. Uh, and it adds a bit of a lure. Uh, if you're spending how many million, millions of pounds back then in today's money to build a new brew house just to make lager, you kind of want to sell it at a premium. And uh, things that are imported, generally are seen as a premium. I think also there is, there's very much a class aspect to how we perceive lager drinkers. So when you have, a, say, a mainstream pub venue and you've got your continental lagers that are promoted very much as a part of an eclectic lifestyle choice where you travel and you try those drinks in those places, we, we perceive that as a kind of like, with that premiumization, but also we see that as kind of like, I am a well-traveled person who chooses to drink Peroni because I had Peroni when I was on holiday in Italy. And you have, whereas you have things like Carling, where it's easy to malign Carling drinkers and Carling people who choose to drink those drinks because of the price point where you could buy a slab of them in the supermarket for a lo much lower price point. But also our perception of lager, I think, is still tainted by this idea of who it was made for. So you've got this idea that it's a softer beverage and that you have the kind of mandrake beer, lady drink lager, kind of like that's decades old, but there's still an aspect to that where the consideration of who is drinking the lager, I think that means that there's not always the care and attention made by craft brewers to make a decent product. And I try a lot of beers for work. Like, some of them are shocking. Um, this seems like a good point to maybe talk a little bit about uh, what we think represents a British lager, maybe a little bit of production. So Reese uh, shares a, a brewing space with us at, at New Barnes Brewery in Leith. And uh, I think it's fair to say that we make very different styles of uh, lager beer, but in the same facility on the same brew house. And... For example, Reese. well, you can talk about it whether you talk about this beer, but uh, you use German malts. We use, uh, <laughs> we use British malts. And I think with, I think with um, British lag or whatever that might be, maybe one day we will have a category in the beer cups for a British-style made lager. Um, for the moment, it feels a little bit like UK interpretation of say Indian food which is kind of taking little bits and changing it so in the UK we see people loving German lager and making hella style beer but then talking about decoction mashing and almost taking elements of Czech lager and German pills and German hell I mean if you think about one of the the best-selling uh, UK lagers of the last 10 years Camden Hells is a hybrid of two styles that are made in Germany in completely different parts of Germany and uh, yeah Fries can introduce the beer and tell people about it and then maybe Colin if you'd like to talk about uh, what you think uh, make what, what do you think makes a British lager well, <laughs> but Reese, if you tell us about this beer yeah so uh, you should be drinking a kind of Northern Hellas which is nice and cold um, it's the beer we've been making since we started it's the first beer we made and it's still like majority of our production um, it's a beer like kind of made the brewery almost, like the, the beer became before the brewery did. I was making it at home before I started the brewery. Um, and when I first started making lagers at home, I was trying to make the lagers you get from Germany when I realized if I want an Augustina, I can just buy an Augustina. Like, until you put your own brand and your own bit of personality into the beer, like, there's, there's no reason not to buy the cheaper, better alternative product. Like, and then Hellas, this kind of, this recipe developed for Northern Hellas, which is, not really like a Munich-style Hellas. It's unfiltered. Um, it's got way more hop character than like a Munich Hellas. It's something more you would get in the kind of the Franconia region where the lager is a bit more like esoteric and a bit more weird um, from smaller breweries. And it's a sort of a beer where like this, this, uh, this beer could not be made, like people wouldn't be making it in, 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 in Munich, in Germany. Like it's, it could only really exist in like the sphere where we're in now in Britain with kind of modern breweries brewing different things. Like, and I think it's important that 
you put your own style on things, not just try and copy something that you can buy for cheaper and better? I think that's a really interesting point in the, that we all, I mean, I, if I had the choice between uh, many beers, I would choose an Augustiner because it seems premium. But in some ways, uh, one of the, the, the nice things about brewing in the UK is the, um, maybe the fact that we don't have the history of uh, Hellas or Pils or super regional, like, you know, with Cologne and Dusseldorf, where it would be, it's seen in Germany, even though we appreciate the beer, it's such a strange thing for someone, uh, a modern UK, a modern German brewery to make IPA, for example, was seen as against the grain, uh, excuse the pun. But uh, yeah, maybe Colin, you could talk a little bit about, do you find it uh, a freeing thing to maybe not have to be restricted by these like purity laws or by prevalence of like, oh, you're a Munich-based brewer, therefore you make Hellas? Yeah, I think like Reese was saying, you know, because there isn't that history in the UK of there being sort of regionalized lager brewing or different lager brewing, that, that it, it's a lot, it seems a lot more interesting. Like guys like yourselves who set up to actually who make mostly lagers are really completely in the minority. I can probably think of maybe no more than the two of you essentially are doing it at a smaller scale. Um, I, I think it, it is wonderfully freeing in a way that we kind of get stuck in this little rut, I think, in Britain where, where like we were discussing before about um, always feeling that because something's imported, it's better or tied to a memory in some way. And uh, I mean, in my own, when lagers I made in the past have always kind of been based on something else and always based on either sort of a German or Italian style. And then sort of, as of, I've become more comfortable with the ingredients and found sort of a bit more freedom and to go, okay, well, what if we tried this with sort of with an American hop or an Australian hop and then try to sort of take a, a completely different angle at it? Because we don't have that history, there isn't a, a point that we're having this beer has to taste like Augustina or Carling or wh whatever that might be, you know? Um, I, I definitely think there is a freedom to it and I definitely think it, it, it's kind of given the brewers who do approach it freedoms to sort of look at new styles of it as well, whereas more in the UK, I think when smaller breweries especially approach lager, they'll try and do maybe like an IPL or sort of an amalgamation of two different styles rather than just sort of approaching going, I'm going to make an Augustiner clone. Because like Reese says, you can go to a shop and buy that. And because they do have decades and centuries of history of making it, it's going to taste better than your sort of knocked up, knocked up sort of interpretation of it. Yeah, I think that's also something that's been uh, been amazing in the last 10 years or plus of uh, the beer scene, especially coming to a festival like this and seeing how much the, the breweries in this country have come on and uh, the quality of beer is obviously hugely better in the craft sector than it was back then. Uh, we've moved away from bottle conditioning mainly and uh, maybe quite uh, yeasty beer and now people are investing in centrifuges and uh, filtration, but... I find with uh, lager brewing, it, when it did become, let's say, a, a trend, uh, I mean, we're still not making the lagers that taste like Augustiner because we don't filter. And uh, we're, th those sorts of things are unobtainable by certain breweries. I'm just interested from Reese again of how, why did you decide uh, in a market that obviously, especially having been in Germany and seen what is the potential um, barrier to entry to make a quality lager, like obviously without a brewery, um, what was going through your bloody head? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things, Johnny. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like uh, it's a bit of a different mindset, especially if you used to produce in cask beer to producing lager. Um, it's a lot more focused on the fermentation, less on and, and condition, less on the kind of the ingredients. Um, and kind of the, the, the word production is important, but like it's kind of a, just a step in the whole process. Sorry, I'm just uh, for context of people who maybe aren't in the industry, uh, which a lot of you are, yeah, a typical turnaround time for like a cast beer could be anything as low as maybe seven days, whereas for like a German-style lager can be upwards of six, eight weeks. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of decision-making going if you want to be a lager-producing brewery. I think there was a point a couple of years ago when a lot of breweries started opening tap rooms, even like bigger breweries who are known for making IPAs and stouts, etc. And they were like, ah, we should do a lager for the tap room. Everyone keeps asking for a lager. So they're like, what, how do we make a lager? We'll buy some lager malt. We'll, 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 we'll turn it around in whatever time and then it's, people drink it. It's fine. It's easy. And um, there was a point where, because we'd only really made lager when like, we're not amazing at making other styles of beer. Uh, 
like, cause our warehouse, that was our warehouse, one of our biggest customers, like, sets of customers was other breweries' tap rooms because they'd, like, tried to make a lager and, like, wasn't thrilled with the, with the results. And just as, like, if I was to have a tap room and have a, a nitro stout on and I wasn't good at making it, I'd probably get someone who was good at making it to get it in. Um, people did that with lager. And I think that it's, you, a brewery doesn't have to be jack of all trades. And I think by, especially being small when I started, and still small now, um, it, was, it was just me for, the, for five years. I was like, if I can just do one beer style and put all my effort into that, I don't have to be good at the rest because then people would know me for that beer and like that style of beer. And then things just developed from there with like other beers like Big Form and, 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 and now Tiny Form, like just different kinds of lagers that spun off from the original kind of uh, uh, original one. When that, even now, like I go, like think about making like an IPA. I'm like, how do you do that? Like I better ask, I better ask some people who are good, like, like, like Colin. Because uh... um, this one's for me, for Hannah as a as a beer buyer. Um, obviously, in the past decade, we've seen uh, a big change in the, the drinking habits of the the UK population, but also specifically in the the UK craft beer drinker. Obviously, uh, people like uh, the Scottish brewery that shall not be named um, tried um, a marketing strategy for years to promote ale, which was to tell people that. Um, lager was for idiots and uh, that lager was beneath them and that hoppy beer is the future and now we've and that same brewery as well as other breweries have now realized that in order to become supermarket brands and beyond pubs that you can't not make a lager uh, at that scale and I'm wondering if you've seen that how, how that trajectory has been over the last few years of like what sort of percentage of people are buying UK craft lager versus the, the ales? So, um, of all the lagers that I buy, um, pretty much kind of like, I get like one pallet of Keller Pills for every one keg of any other lager from anyone else. Three are, are three best-selling lagers, only one of them is British and it's Keller Pills. And the others are Rot House and Amundsen Hells, which has just come from nowhere and suddenly is going out and and I think that with uh, lager over kind of anything else, apart from 3.8% pale ale in cask, the price point is key in a way that it doesn't necessarily affect the IPAs, double IPAs, stouts. Like people are willing to pay more of those because it needs to have a much broader appeal than just your pay, like just a pale ale would have. Um, so one of the things that we do see is that it's still, it's still really seasonal. So it's the kind of like, it does die off over the winter. And then this weather, I imagine that like the pallet that came in yesterday of the 24 kegs will be gone by Monday afternoon because people, you can take like, you can take friends that don't necessarily drink craft beer or want to engage in something super niche or kind of technical, difficult. I can't quite think of the right phrase for challenging um, and kind of engage with it as a group but also in a way with craft lager versus kind of big brand lager um, there isn't necessarily the fidelity to the brand by consumers so like I will drink I, I, I'm only recently I'm quite new to lager in the last few years I was very much like it's not for me uh, and I was a snob about it because I could be um, <laughs> and so and one of those elements is like I will drink kind of pills I'll drink Don Soco those kind of like whereas if you're a Peroni drinker you drink your Peroni and you drink it in your vase the tall branded glasses and that's kind of like because that's that's your beer and that's what you're paying for and that's your kind of like where you want to be focused on it you won't necessarily try these other things and I don't even think it's it's necessarily like I, I think it feeds back into the idea of like this is what this is part of like what I choose and the tribe I choose to be part of. Um, but it is very much it is it is a growing space. But a lot of the lagers made by craft brewers who specialise in other styles, they don't quite hit the mark. There's nowhere to hide in a lager in the way that you can have like more hops or you can give it a slightly longer rest like you need you do need to have that more time as you guys said 
and I, the constraints of everything that happened to small brewers, it's not always there. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, the palate adjustment, I mean, uh, when we moved uh, up to start the brewery in Edinburgh, all of us were making ales in London and quite hoppy uh, ales and hadn't made lagers. And yeah, you're, when you're looking for things in there, it's a completely different uh, ball game. You're having to retrain your palate from looking for certain flavors to looking for different flavors. Um, one thing that you touched on that um, I'd like to go into a bit more is maybe provenance and a general thing that I find about the UK, which is quite sad, is uh, we don't seem to have, at the moment, despite having the ability to, and with the climate, be able to make amazing things. Compared to other countries, Italy, Germany, for example, we don't seem to hold uh, ingredients or in the same echelon as uh, like Italians would talk about going to the markets. Like, we treat our food like it's made in a factory. It's... Uh, like the way people shop in supermarkets. I'm wondering, we have some of the best barley and best maltings in the world and people will pay good money to import malt from uh, Simpsons in the UK to California to the States in shipping containers because it's valued that much. And yet when we, as a, as a producer, look to make lager, most people, because we're copying from the Germans or the Czechs, look towards uh, continental malts. I'm wondering if, uh, maybe for Colin, if you might would talk about uh, what, you, what malt you use and do you think it's important that uh, UK-made lager should, because obviously Reese's, we can talk about it after, but uh, you buy continental malt and I'm wondering if you think it's important or it, does it matter? Um, <clears throat> that's a really interesting point, actually, because we, I, I, I've kind of fallen into the same trap previously. When, we, when I first started at Salt and we were making Hex Lager at ours, we were importing um, Vireman Malt from Bamberg. Um, and eventually, we, after sort of several months of doing that, um, tried making a batch basically with the Simpsons Lager Malt because of, how about our doorstep? We found the filtration much better, we found the crush much more suitable to our setup. Um, and overall, then, then sort of the, the use of you know, the flavors contained within were, we found much more accessible from what we do because we were kind of obviously using their malt for everything else. It, it, it was actually more, it was easier to kind of trace off flavors or trace any sort of problems in the malt because we had that direct relationship. And then that, that, that then really changed the way that we sort of approached making lager from there on in. We, we, we then like... Like we said before, there's, there's no point really trying to recreate Augustiner because it's been done and it's on the shelves. They make it better, faster, and cheaper than we ever possibly could. So why are we not trying to make something with its own provenance and with, with our own sort of step on it? Um, having said that, we still sort of reverted to using like a German imported yeast, um, generally because most yeasts, most lager yeasts we've tried in the UK we've found to be a bit substandard or a bit sluggish, don't tend to get quite as dry a finish. Um, I definitely think there's something in that. That I think re realistically, if you're, if you're going to make something in the UK, you're going to sell it as a UK lager. Then you've kind of you've got to look at it and say, okay, well, what is it that makes this a UK lager, other than that it is a lager made in the UK? And I think you need to push for something a little bit more than that, so you can make the beer your own. And like we were saying before, it's all well and good, so we're trying to do a morphology of someone else's recipe or a copy of something that someone else has done before, but that's probably got novelty legs for like two or three brews. If you actually want to make a a job out of it. You want to make some, that that's something that becomes your own. You have to make it your own and, and using the things that we have on our doorstep. Like obviously there's still a lot of snobbery about using fine German hops. Like I think even, even to this day, if you mentioned to a craft beer drinker, it was like, I'm going to make a, a UK based lager and I'm going to make it with Fuggles or Goldings or any UK hop. People would sniff at you, like really look down their nose at you. Whereas I think some of the best lagers I've had and outside of the German Czech borders, um, you know, generally will have attempted to use either, again, sort of American or Australian hops to, to try and sort of emphasize a different flavor push. But some of the best will have just used like a really sort of like, we, we made a very good one with um, East Kent Goldings a few years ago. Well, that's actually a really interesting point uh, about uh, use of ingredients because, uh, to go on to Reese for a second, but uh, the other day we were, I was coming up with a recipe with, in collaboration with another brewery and when they showed me their hop list, for making a lager, we went. I, my eyes didn't even focus on anything beyond the German and Czech hops because that's what we've been trained in the industry to to do. And sometimes it can be quite restrictive whenever your mindset is 
okay, I'm brewing a hell Hellas, therefore I'm using maybe a Saz or I'm using a Halotar uh, varietal, whereas Reese, uh, you use uh, a very different hop in your Northern Hells, uh, which is, I think, not many people would maybe use in a Hellas style beer. Yeah, so we've actually just. <laughs> so Northern Hellas has. Um, we actually changed the hop profile like last year. So all the ingredients for Northern Hellas are imported. Like none of it is, Brit is British, which, like. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm the worst. Think of I'm our the, industry, I'm man. The worst guy. Like, sorry. The climate, um, but uh, for, the, for the beer I want, the ingredients I want um, that go into making this beer, the flavor profile I want uh, from those imported ingredients, like the German hops rich in this beer, which is um, Halotar Blanc, we saw direct from a farm, um, which is processed on the farm by a nice man called Ludwig. Uh, the um, he watches my YouTube videos with his family. Uh, <laughs> it's class. Um, the um, the malt is from Bamberg, and one of the hops, Stickelbracht, is from New Zealand. So it's a it's a um, German hop, northern brewer that's grown in New Zealand, and it gives it a, a kind of another kind of kind of more kind of tropical sort of side to it. Uh, but it's kind of the reverse argument to the Madri thing, where people are, oh, it's claimed to be Spanish, but it's actually made in the UK. Like, there's nothing about this beer that says it's like a British thing. It's got a Japanese name. Uh, it's a German style of beer. Uh, yeah, the East is from Switzerland. Um, but you have to have, I think if you're wanted, if you wanted to charge more for your beer, it has to be better. Like with the difference between lagers being smaller than say, you try an IPA versus a lager, um, a generic lager, and you can taste the difference straight away. Like, well, this is a craft beer. Whereas like if you buy, if you try a craft lager and, and a lager, the difference is smaller. So how do you justify that price to the consumer? If you're going to try, if you're trying to make the same thing, and for me, the, the beer, the beer I want to make, which is a hoppier version of those German smaller, smaller brewery kind of Keller beers, uh, is is to use those ingredients, and that's the flavor profile I want. I've tried using some 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 different malts uh, when I couldn't get malt deliveries from from my guys, and um, it, it didn't perform and make the beer I wanted to make. There is some beers that like we do a beer called Garden Beer uh, once or twice a year, which is all British hops um, and some British malt as well. And I really like that beer, but it's a different beer to this. And to make this beer, I have to use those ingredients for me um, to get that flavor profile, which I think can charge more for the consumer so the small business can run. That's my kind of justification for ruining the planet. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions that we can move this in a, in a way that uh, feels more organic than us just chatting? Does anyone have anything they want to ask? It's early for questions, but I think it would guide uh, the, the conversation. Afternoon, everybody. Um, we were talking about the, the kind of uh, expectation of a lager drinker in the UK, and we've got the term the lager lout. But then we're also talking about we're not kind of stuck with the tradition of, say, like Germany with their history of producing lager. So we have the opportunity to kind of make our own thing, which is what we're talking about now. But is that space then eaten up uh, by the 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 negative connotation of the lager drinker or is there, a, is there enough room to grow into and make that kind of why is Madri the, the biggest UK lager is, 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 it, is it held down by uh, the negative connotations in, in the past or do we have enough room to move into to make a, a modern British lager I think essentially what you're asking is how do, how do we uh, make the Repair the image of uh, of British lager, and maybe Hannah. You, how how does the customers see British made lagers? Do they still see it as inferior to? I think I'm not necessarily inferior. I think that um, I can't. I, I think I, I saw it somewhere. Like I think every every craft beer drinker goes through the cycle of lagers are dreadful. I will drink all of these IPAs, and my bitter like my bitterness of everything must be really high and then I'm going to drink all these dark beers and I've discovered girls and then it's like oh my god lager is amazing and it's that kind of like looping that you do I think that the the notion of the lager lout the idea of that very much feeds into a class sort of like classism and that negativity of like who chooses to buy these things and how much they choose to pay for these things in the same way that we as a, as a nation of people, 
um, like to push down on anybody that we perceive to be doing something that we wouldn't choose for ourselves because, you know, kind of like, you, you know, you, it's, it's like the notion of the, when they were talking about, you know, the hummus eaters, the kind of like Guardian reading hummus eaters. Everybody's got a pot of hummus in their fridge. It's one of the best imports that we've ever achieved in the UK. Um, but with that kind of like, it would very much come down to, it would require a, a much bigger effort to kind of change that perspective. And I think that in the same way, like we were talking about football this morning, like football hooliganism is very much being like phased out and like kind of cracked down on and making sure that doesn't happen. But in a living memory, we're still going to have that association. Like the fact that, you know, for a long time, as said earlier, like lager being associated like a half a lager for the lady, that's like our grandparents that's kind of phased out because then you had people drinking lager because they didn't want to drink beer like their dad. And then you, I remember these lads coming in the pub I worked in years ago and they, didn't, they drank cask beer because their dad drank lager and they didn't want to be like their dad. So it is, it's something that can definitely happen. And I think the more access to great quality like beer out there where it's kind of seen on the same level as all of these other beers where you've got that consistency you've got these great products being made by people even if they're only making like one every now and again the standard needs to come up but that's always going to be an abc1 grouping of people who go i'm choosing to pay extra for this premium product so yes and no i think and if you look at like the top selling lagers in the uk they're all premium brands like, like San Miguel, Madri. It's, it, it's not Foster's or Carlin really anymore. They're dropping down the rankings and it's the premium brands like Peroni, et cetera, that, like Amoretti, which are like the kings. And they're not cheap beers. Like Peroni is, how much is that pint? Like in a, in a pub in, in the center of the city, like six, seven quid. Like it's, it's not a cheap do. The only, and our beers, like in, in Newcastle, we have a number of accounts and like most of our beers are between five pounds and five pound fifty a pint. So like in the pub next door, you get a Peroni for six quid. The price is not that difference. The only difference is, and they're both premium, looking to be premium products. The only difference is, is that like our beers and, and Colin, et cetera, like every, they're worth the money. Like they're actually providing a premium, not just a, a name that's exotic and a man on the front with a, with a hat. Yeah, or a, or a nice big funky glass. That yeah, seems yeah. to be the main selling point you want to have. That's my, my chalice. So yeah. sit and drink from this and from. We're so, only going to do uh, those yard long ones from now on. So, <laughs> so th this is something that we actually talked about again this morning at the tent, which is something that I think we're going to struggle with in the industry going forward, which is now that the, the beer quality, I think, has matched up to the bigger brands, we, as a brewery, struggle with this occasionally where people sometimes, bars or restaurants maybe think because the beer is up there with the quality that you are a larger brewery and maybe expect the same treatment uh, as they would get from your Heinekens, your Guinnesses. Uh, so in terms of uh, glassware for pubs, uh, install of lines, uh, maintenance whenever things go wrong is something that uh, we've started seeing um, that is... Uh, hard to deal with because we don't have teams of hundreds of people. We don't have a Guinness team to go out and fix your lines. And uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's hard being a small lager producer because when now that we've caught up with in taste, it's now getting the, it's getting the message across. And uh, yeah, I don't really know what my point with that is, just uh, a general rant about... Uh, <laughs> I know that uh, last year Hackney Brewery uh, had a lager festival. They had, and they got beers from. Was all it five, five points? No, no they had it at High Hill. Oh, but I think they, they, but they had. I think it was like twenty different lagers in from various places. But also, I was just say about lagers. We're talking very specifically about like Heller's Lager. Like the British have no capacity for things like Schwarzbier in a way and like you go when you do go uh, stuff like to Germany and you've got all of these amazing different styles and Vienna Lager is one of the beers that when it comes up on lists for me I know that I might have one or two people who know that they can sell 30 litres through and like they are there is a market for it but like one guile across everywhere because it's something that when you put an amber coloured lager in a glass for someone who's expecting something that looks like Heller's immediately shifts to kind of like, that's not what I wanted, that's not why I, I, the expectation is just 
gone. I mean, look at uh, the rise and fall of Brooklyn Lager in the UK. Uh, you know, that beer was everywhere 10 years ago, and people were quite happy drinking an amber-coloured lager. Um, one thing I'd like to ask uh, Colin, because uh, you've been in the industry for quite some time. Uh, I am old, I yes. hope you don't mind the word, the word <laughs> veteran. Um, how, do we, how do we, as a, a nation, um, create a new beer style? Because I've watched in the past, we've, we've seen Black IPA and all, we've seen Brute IPA, all that stuff. But we are quite comfortable now saying that there are beer styles that have originated from niche parts of the United States, uh, you know, cold IPA. That where, where, that we, four years ago, no one had heard of that term, maybe five years ago. Is it that we suck at collaborating as a, as a nation? Or do, like, why is it that, I can't remember the last time we had a, a new addition to the uniquely like a British style lager. And do we think we'll ever get there? Um, why is it that in the North Pacific Northwest, we can have a new style of beer being created and it's spreads from one brewery in, you know, Washington state or Oregon. And then by the next year, people are like, Americans are brewing Italian style pills. We don't brew that in the UK. We have access. Like, I don't think Italians brew Italian style lager. <laughs> like, it's funny that certain cultures are able to create these styles and, and whereas we, I mean, are the, in the same building we make lager and they couldn't be, no offense, but like, like but they couldn't be more different. Like, they are, but that's, that's the good thing. I mean, if we tried making the same beer, we'd be competing ourselves to death. Yeah, but the like, do you have to put a name on it? Because, like, yeah, when you go to Franconia, there might be, like, like every village has a brewery and every, every brewery will brew a, a lager or a Hellas or a Pilsner, no matter what they call it. But you go to the next village, you might have a beer that's called the same name, but this one is completely different. It is, like, com- like you can't compare one and the one and the other. And there's no... I don't think they need to put a label on it and be like, we've created this new British-style lager called the, the Johnson Lager. And, um, like, you know, like... <laughs> Yeah, no, no, exactly. Like we're going to workshop that name. We're yeah. gonna... <laughs> <laughs> Just marketing. But I'm a new Johnson Lager. How, how big's your marketing budget? <laughs> <laughs> so small. Yeah, I don't think any, like as a nation, we're quite self-deprecating, and like no one's jumping up to be like, "I've invented a new thing." It's like, no, you haven't. Sit down. Well, I think, I think that there's definitely an element of that then, then with when you look at like, all of the styles I was just thinking about, all the stuff that we mentioned there, you know, like cold IPA, um, black IPA, brewed IPA, you notice that they all have the IPA title in them. And that, because for so long that the IPA became the flagship thing for a smaller brewery to have and it was all about, right, okay, well, we've got this, we, we can release this. And then I think there is an element of novelty still about the craft beer scene that, that maybe other... Um, markets don't wouldn't really look into, so it's always right. Okay, well, we've made this great West Coast IPA, then we made New England IPA, and then what's the next type of IPA we can make to keep customers interested? And I don't necessarily think that's down to the consumers. I think a lot of time the brewery have almost taken taken the, the notice that we have to have something new. There's always going to be something new coming forward, bringing through to keep people interested in what we do. Um, whereas especially in the UK, because like we've spoken about sort of imports and about the importance of, oh, well, I went on holiday and had a San Miguel and it was amazing, so now I only drink San Miguel out of my beautiful glass. Um, whereas they find it a lot more difficult to, to push themselves into, but how do we make lager new without messing it up? Because the serious craft heads appreciate that lager is very difficult to make and very difficult to get right. And maybe that not to run to the detriment of... of IPA breweries, but a lot of them, you have a lot more scope to hide any potential flaws or potential things, so you can kind of mess around with a new recipe, call it something new, and get away with selling it. Um, and that's where I think the real problem with sort of pushing sort of on a new sort of lager style is. On, uh, that, paired with what Reese has said, that the, you know, p- people are just a bit, a bit wary of, of you attacking a lager style because it is known to be a classical thing and it's like when your dad was growing up maybe you went out and had like 10 pints of Carling and then you didn't want, you didn't want to drink that because he did so you have Peroni and what's the next premium thing? Lager's always really pushed as a premium product whereas IPA seems to ha- suffer with a lot of people just going this is, here are the, the new thing rather than the best thing. I feel yeah British people are it's, a, it's akin to someone coming around your house for dinner and then apologising that's maybe not exactly 
the way that the recipe said. He's like, it's, right, it's not quite as good as that we had it in the re- a restaurant. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've made a terrible. I've, I've ruined your evening. Like we're very quick at being like, it's. I know it's not Augustiner, but it's pretty. It's pretty close. It's all right. Like we're still trying to. I think we're as a nation pretty bad at putting, or like pretty good at putting ourselves down and saying like, oh, we're. Uh, but then yeah, when you talk to people, like the amount of people who visited uh, the UK recently from the states, uh, that visited us at the brewery, who come to drink pints of cat banked beer because this guy wrote about it. But there is a lot of people respect uh, our cast beer and our beer culture here a lot more than maybe we take it for granted. We think maybe we're as a, a nation of underachievers, but I think certainly around the world, uh, our, our beer is well regarded, uh, but we as an island sit and look at other people and be like, I wish we were more like Germany. I wish we could, I wish we could make yeah, our beer. I definitely think there's a lot of that in the industry where it's always, oh, but why would we sell our IPAs to America because they make the best IPAs? Why would we sell our lager to Germany because they make the best lagers? You know, at some point, sort of like I, like I was saying before about when you make something your own and you sort of choose your ingredients to kind of make it your own style of thing, people would come because they want to try your own style of thing. And I think, you know, it, to the general public, if you look at sort of like you have these ridiculous surveys on like Lad Bible or whatever saying the best beer countries in the world and America's always like right at the bottom and UK's, UK and Germany are always right at the top. And yet uh, we as brewing professionals look to America as like, we are so far behind. Uh, we, we just at New Barns had a have a intern who start, started with us and he's worked in uh, breweries in the states. And despite us having a lot of experience in the industry, he's worked at bigger breweries than all of us have, and he's a lot younger. And uh, because they're so far ahead, but we as a nation, are... I don't even think completely so far ahead. Even sums it up because we still look at like Belgium and we go, oh, look at these amazing traditional beers they make, and. We'll, then we look and sort of try and like do do little sort of interpretations of those styles as well. It's, it's just the complete self-deprecation of everything we do. Is like someone's always done it better. Why are we even trying? So the lesson is that we need to manifest that we are great. We are good. Um, does anyone have any questions? Isn't that how colonialism started, though? <laughs> Matthew has a question. Hi, Johnny. Big fan of the podcast. I have, um, it's two questions really. Um, I spent quite a bit of time in the US and I've watched over the last couple of years, certainly post-COVID, lager brewing is um, uh, becoming hugely more popular and something that uh, American breweries seem to be obsessed with is decoction mashing. So I'm interested, uh, first, on your opinion on decoction mashing and if we'll see more of that in the UK in a, in a nation which, where our breweries are set up for single infusion mashing. And I'm also interested in uh, the side pour handles. Do you think we'll see more of these uh, Luca Czech side pour handles? A trend I saw last time in the US is people do shots of foam. So you get a little glass, just a glass of foam, and you drink that before your beer, like the Mlico pour, and I think that's fucking cool. Like, it's fun, um, and you get all that lovely hoppy foam. So I'm just interested uh, on your opinion on both of those things. The only people who like Mlico pours are people who uh, w- on press trips to to Bud Bar. <laughs> no offense, Matthew. Anyone want to answer that? I'm sorry, I'm with him. Like I had a milk pour for the first time in Prague, and it was the greatest thing I've ever drunk. Like it, it was delicious. How much did they pay you to go? <laughs> Many. First class flight, right? Um, I have no opinion on decoction mashing. I was going to talk about the side pour taps. I think that we have a a carbonation issue. It's also a textural issue. So the idea of giving somebody, a a regular person, a glass of creamy, creamy foam, 90% of them would just be like, where's my beer? Why have you given me this? And I think that that's that's very much just a very cultural drink. Um, But also one of the things that... I kind of like all the years I worked in bars and all of the, when I think of it now, carbonation and the kind of like, you get this element where some of the lagers that are being made, they're just too fizzy and that's not a pleasant mouthfeel and it's going to like, you're going to end up with that sort of like that weird aspirin kind of like off flavour that you're not quite sure where it's coming from but you know that it's deeply unpleasant. But then you get the other end of it where you've got somebody and they're like, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's, we've, we've carbonated it, but it's basically just like 
it's a little bit bubbly, but it's not a lager bubbly. And I think that we kind of like, that's very much where we're not quite getting it right. And until we do that, there's no point in having fancy sideboard taps for anything British at this time. I think as well, there is an element just to be really boring about this with the Weights and Measures Act in the UK and how much people kick off if it's a millimetre below their perceived pint line or the head's too big or their head's too small or, you know, depending on which part of the country you're in as well, that becomes such a big thing. Um, I think we're probably a long way off side pours as is. But I love the coction mashing, so that's all if, good. If, if, you want, if you want the foam, just, just bank it. It's, it's, that's the way to go. And then you get a full pint. But I think with decoction mashing, like a lot of breweries say like, our beer is better because we do decoction mashing. It's kind of a marketing thing. And I'm like, I've done beers that are decocted, I've done beers that are not decocted, I've done that in the same beer. And for me, it, it, it's not a game changer. Like, I didn't see it worth the extra kind of energy cost. Uh, especially and you're going home later. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, want, I want to go home and watch some Netflix. Don't want to miss like, neighbors, uh, mate. Yeah, I've got a pizza in the freezer. But uh, <laughs> I wish I did. Um, the, uh, but, like, equally, if, if that's a tool in your arsenal and you think it makes a better beer, please do it because, like, it's, it's cool that, like, People are putting their own, I keep saying, putting the personality and put their own brand on the beer. And if for you, that's doing a decoction and you feel like great, it's a better beer, knock yourself out, that's class. Like, I'm all for it. Like, put the effort in. Don't just, like, take the lowest common denominator, like, lager, produce it and pump it out for your tap room. Like, put, put some, some umph into it. Like, I think also, yeah, it, it really depends. So, some breweries, it's literally a case of pressing a button and it says decoct and you're like, sweet. Uh, others, it's a... Uh, it, it is going home two hours late because you decided to decoct uh, a beer. Um, I think what you said about carbonation is really, really interesting. And I think as maybe producers, we, don't, we do take that seriously, but I think the, maybe the average drinker, uh, but yeah, the, the acidity you get from like a, a tin of tenants or carling or something like that is very different to the, mm. the softer carbonation you get. And foam is something that I think uh, we're... I think to appreciate lager and to get to that stage, like we're saying, of the, that um, you know we can get to side pours and that sort of thing, we need to build again the the relationship between the customer and the producer to be like, okay, this is the foam is important. Like we don't see it like this guy's got a beer called Big Foam. Tell us about Big Foam. Yeah. So like one of the big problems I've found is having especially an unfiltered product, which like. Um, is, is alive and, and it's all spun, it's naturally carbonated. A lot of UK pub sellers are built for cask, they're kept at like, let's say 12 degrees and they're like, just really a cellar under the pub. They're not designed for real carbonated keg lager, even with like chillers, there's a big python line, like, it, so many pubs have different setups that if you carbonate your beer to a kind of a higher level, you're going to get some calls in some of people being like, your beer's all foam. So if you call your beer big foam, no one can complain. So, yeah, that, that was the idea, is that Big Foam's got a slightly higher carbonation. It is a form of your beer. There's a lot more, some spelting from a local farm, which is not employed. Um, and local lo to where? Local to someone. Uh, <laughs> it's nowhere yeah. near Leith, mate. Well, it's where the brewery was. So, um, the, so the, uh, yeah, if your beer's called Big Foam and someone gets a pint, which is like a quarter foam, I mean, joke's on them, because that's what they asked for, so... Are there any more questions in the audience? Oh, there's a question at the back. Hi, everybody. Big fan of the podcast. Um, <laughs> you said big foam. It's not the guy with the, it's, I'm on the train, it's crap. Phone. What? <laughs> Sorry, the big, big phone, like a, a big form, like a <laughs> spumante, espuma. He's not Dom Jolly. <laughs> It could be Dom Jolly. It could be. Any other questions? Are we going to... Oh, we got another question. Cheers. Thanks very much. Um, I was just curious, do the panel have um, any, any British lagers that they think we need to, like, revisit? You know, there are Europeans who cherish Tenant Super, for example, um, on draft. They have that on tap. So I'm just curious... You know, like you've been talking about, we, we maybe consider it as the drink of the homeless and hooded youths in the park. So are there any, any British lagers out there that you think people should have a, a try and 
have a, have a go at, if you see what I mean. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the company, but Sam Smith's anger brow, I've, I've got a really, really soft spot for. And it's not just because it's dirt cheap either. Um, is that the man in a box? The, is that the line? Yeah. yeah. Man in a box. I don't know what the real name like, is. Even they're like pure brood and taddies. Like, I kind of grew up drinking that in a flat roof pub uh, for like £1.80 a pint. And like, as much as the owner is one of the worst people in the world, like, no joke, it, it's, a, it's a good beer. Like, it's annoying. I believe he's actually, I think his son's now taken over. I think they forced him out. Yeah. I, I can't confirm that, but uh, that was what I heard. Yeah. Get shot. I think uh, also it's very important uh, in the industry. There has been a, a resurgence, especially maybe in the London scene or in the UK in general, of what I can normally refer to as uh, the gentrification of working class products uh, and making them uh, cool again. Matthew wrote an article about Guinness, Guinness's example, but um, I have found in a post-craft world, it is, there has been a bit of a, a, a niche for like saying how good tenants is recently. And I've got so lost in it that to be honest, I can't remember if it actually is a good beer or if I've just been so t- convinced that it's a good beer. I was in the same state where I was so convinced that everyone was saying it ironically that I was like, I don't know whether I want to try this again or not. Because I grew up, my dad used to just drink tenants. That's what was in our house usually. And it, yeah. It's same with, 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 it's same with harp. Like uh, when I go back home to Northern Ireland, you don't really see it in this country, but uh, Colin will know it. Uh, I will have a pint of harp and every time I'm like, this is a bad beer. But there's something, there is something it's that... the taste of home, I think but, but, there is that thing. Yeah, and but, the same with Guinness, where like, I know obviously we've don't, been that route. But. Don't discount those like non-physical things that make me enjoy that beer more. If you enjoy that, like that pint in Cronenberg, more because it's in the pub that you, you grew up near and you drink it with your dad. Like, that's a genuine reason that that beer is good. It's not just made up, like the kind of semantics around the thing. You can enjoy that more if it's like, you're drinking the first pint in Tenants and you're Scottish and you've just got the, the plain home. And he'd gone straight to the pub and he'd had two pints. I mean, it was a, a famous uh, tenants advert uh, based around a guy uh, traveling up from London. And uh, it was very, it's set to Caledonia and it's a very beautiful, heartwarming advert. I'd recommend you all go watch it. But yeah, whenever I was living in, in London, it was, uh, yeah, the first thing I did was get off the train and have a pint of tenants because it was, uh, and it doesn't matter how good it was, but I, it'd be interesting to see who I, mean, I think we are starting to see a change in the industry towards from anti-core range where we have breweries now like Antipatch and Hop Day who five years ago were a brewery that existed in Bermondsey and now you say the name London Black and people are like, oh yeah, London Black. I'm pretty sure I saw someone in a London Black hat earlier. Maybe they're kicking around. But uh, we are moving towards a period where I think we can see uh, smaller breweries um, just producing. Uh, we're seeing it in Edinburgh with breweries shifting towards making a specific style of beer. Um, I'm just wondering how, do you think that's possible that these breweries that have, can go from making 70 new recipes a year to just churning out like a beer that dominates the market? Maybe Hannah, do you think? That? Um, I think that if you are able to make one beer really well that can like account for say I don't know 60 or 70 percent of your sales and you know that you can you can make it in your schedule that you get a good profit on it and it keeps the lights on and also allows you to make do anything else that you want to do then it's a sense it's from a business perspective it's a really sensible thing that's the dream right yeah it's like that's what that's what that's the whole point of having that one that one beer that one bit that you're known for, that's like, like the marble pint, looking at you, pint is the one that I, I kind of like, is the, is the beer that you kind of like, you associate so heavily with that one place. And I think if you can do that, and if you can specialise in it in a way that you're the go-to person for that beer style, absolutely. I think it's something that we've, we've, we've lost a little bit, maybe in, in beer in general, but uh, books that you would see a lot that often were gifts um, that were like a thousand beers to try before you die. Oh, we all, we've all seen, we're probably being read one or look, flick through. It would be so hard to make that sort of thing now because um, people aren't specialising in one product. You don't go, 
assault. Those are the guys you make. These guys are Reese is maybe an exception, but you've you've diversified into other things. But like for a while, it was just Northern Hells. But it is a uh, but you've obviously made that decision. Why did you make that decision? Because uh, you got to sell beer to pay for yourself. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, like it was also much easier to s- put to sell Northern Hellas with other things in the wings as well. Um, if if you're approaching like a new bar and you have those other things, even if you're well known for that one beer, it's nice to have a few more little sidekicks behind you. Um, I think in sales terms as well, when you're approaching a bar, they very rarely want you to bring one thing because you can go, oh, well, you know, if I'll bring you like six kegs or whatever and you'll get a small discount and they're like, yeah, I don't want like six of the larger. So what else have you got to back it up? And then it kind of works both ways on that as well. So we'll, if we do a new beer, someone will be like, oh, yeah, well, we want a pallet, but we'll just take like three cases of that and then build the pallet up for the, with the rest of the core and you're mm-hmm. tr- just trying to, it works both ways on that, I think. It's also like really fun and it can also feed back and, improve your core beer so Northern Hellas used to be hopped with all New Zealand hops and then we started producing big form and through the search for the best Hallertau Blanc to put in big form we got in touch with the German guy Ludwig and he um, his Blanc was so good it's now in Hellas as well and it's made this beer like loads better cheaper produce and like way better than it was and that's from experimenting and trying other things they can all feed back and help your your first thing grow as well I think we're running short on time. Any time for questions, Matthew? No? We have time for one question. Matthew's allowing it. Anyone got more questions? Hey, uh, you guys were talking about competing with, with the big guys. Is there a point where you'd stop growth if you had sort of unlimited sales? Is there a point you'd stop your brewery growing and just say, like, here's enough? Or is it sort of exponential over? If you've got the sales, would you just keep growing and growing? Like for, for me, it's how you define like growth. So in terms of production, I want to grow to a point where I've got on-site sales, I've got a, a, a tap room people are visiting, I do some wholesale, but then growing in a point which isn't not production, it's in terms of like, okay, new equipment, make people's lives easier, maybe, maybe better wages, maybe reinvest in the tap room. Like I'd rather grow in that sort of way and just maybe sustainability as well than growing just to like chasing production, production, production because that sounds like a lot of headaches and I've not got a lot of patience. Um, on a personal note, yeah, 100%. That, that would be my dream. That, 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 before I took, well, just after I'd left Buxton, um, I, my plan was to open a sort of 15 hectolitre brew house, brew pub, tap room with the pure intention that I never wanted to expand it other than making it work better and the beers better. Um, but that's why I don't run a business. So, you know. <laughs> People want an easy life. And if you can get to a point where, like, everyone's happy and you're not, like, trying to brew a thousand hectolitres a week, uh, that's cool. I think that, like, the beer industry falls down on any notion of what a work-life balance looks like. And, um, and it's something that kind of like, you know, I did my time in brewery sales and my brewery sales was brewery sales, comms, marketing, you do everything. And I think that with, if you can have a brewery where you sell everything you make, you can turn a profit to keep everything going and you've got time to go home and take the weekend, absolutely do that. Like, I also don't run a business because it's a lot of paperwork. Like, there is a lot of paperwork and HR, HMRC and, that, and all that stuff. They, brewers can do that. Um, but, like, yeah, you want to be able to... You have your thing. You go to work. You finish work at the end of the day and you leave work there and you get to enjoy the spoils of what you've achieved. So, whereas, yeah, exponential growth, the money's got to come from somewhere and then the bills have got to get paid. It would be really handy if next talk we had a, a talk about how to make beer fun again. So thank you for that fantastic segue into the next talk. Uh, Colm, you had, a, you had a point there you want to make? Well, I was just going to say, yeah, that, that I think similar to what Hannah's just said, really, that when you're constantly chasing sales and you're constantly chasing the new thing and you're constantly trying to grow and get bigger, like I think that there is a bit of a notion maybe within sort of, it's probably not just in the UK, but certainly amongst UK businesses, that if you're not growing, you're, you're going down. Um, I, I, like, I, I personally don't agree with it but I, th- I think there is that perception and 
certainly when you're selling a lot in the sort of craft beer bars, they want to see the new thing and they will. And in order for that to happen, if you've got one really good brand that you're growing and growing and you're working on that, but you've still got to keep doing new and new things, it's so easy to just fall into that rabbit hole of, right, okay, we'll need another fermenter, then we'll need another brew day, so we'll need two more members of staff. Then in order to pay those members of staff, we'll need two more fermenters and we'll have to get another brand going and it rolls and rolls and rolls. So I think there is just a perception in the UK about, about how a business is doing based on how much it's growing rather than the quality of life involved for everyone. If you'd like to hear more of this sort of chat with different faces on stage, then you can come back at 1.15 to this very tent where we'll be talking about how to make beer fun again. Uh, but until then, uh, I don't know how long a break that is, probably 15 minutes or so, but uh, if you can give a round of applause for these fantastic people. And yeah, and, uh, I think yeah, we've, we've, we've learned one thing, which is we make quite good lager in the UK and we should, be, we should be proud of ourselves. Go home and be proud of yourselves, guys. Well, I don't know about you, but now I am ready for a cold and crispy glass of lager, maybe with some extra foam from a Luca side pour faucet. I hope that made you thirsty. I'll be back in an indeterminate amount of time with the next episode from FineFest. Don't forget to support us on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash mag. Give us your money and we'll spend it on making more articles and podcasts just like this one. Until next time, I have been Matthew Curtis and you have been listening to the Pellicle Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>